Well, good morning. It's great to see that uh, some of you remained in town this weekend. Uh, it's good to see you, man. As soon as the sun comes out, people head off on vacation. So that's good. Well, it's good to see you. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Luke, chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible, you can just slip your hand in the air and uh, one of our uh, ushers will bring one to you this morning. I've been preaching through the book of Luke. We're almost done. We have one more chapter after this. Uh, we are now in Luke chapter 23. We'll be reading verses 32 to 38. Luke chapter 23. We'll be starting in verse 32. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for just a gorgeous day that we do not deserve. Father, we know that um, because of our sin, we deserve your immediate, unending wrath. And anything less than that is incredible mercy. So, Father, you have been merciful to us, all of us. And, Father, this day that you've given us, a beautiful day, is mercy. Father, this word that we have in front of us that tells us who you are and who Jesus is, is, is sheer mercy. And Father, the, the passage we read this morning, what Jesus does is sheer mercy. And Father, I just ask that you'd open our hearts to receive mercy this morning. And Father, our hearts would be warmed again by your mercy. Some of us may be warmed for the first time by your mercy poured out to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us not to take passages like this for granted. Help us not to become dull to passages like this. I pray, Father, you give us new eyes and uh, help us, Lord, to, to see amazing things in this passage this morning. And we thank you for it, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Amen. A cross, a cross is a, a pretty common symbol in our day. You stop and think about it, we really see crosses all over the place. We, we see crosses on church buildings, on steeples and stained glass windows and on church signs. We, we see crosses in homes, and in pictures on the wall or, or on bookshelves. We even see crosses on, on people, on, on necklaces or earrings or t-shirts or even even cross tattoos and I think the presence of all of these crosses around us on a daily basis has probably desensitized us quite a bit to the actual horror of the cross 
I think it's probably numbed us quite a bit to the obscene horror of a human being crucified on a cross. Kent Hughes says, in our busy lives, we drive right by depictions of the crucifixion, a crucified man, and hardly bat an eye. But how would we respond today if we saw a painting or a sculpture of a crucified dog or a cat? We'd be horrified. We are desensitized to the horror of a person being crucified on a cross. Listen, the people in Jesus' day, they were not desensitized to the cross at all. Because most of the people in Jesus' day in the first century Roman Empire, they had all witnessed firsthand a real flesh and blood crucifixion on a cross. And because of that, the cross to them was absolutely appalling. So many, so offensive that many people in the Roman Empire wouldn't even use the word cross. A Roman actor on one occasion performed a skit back then, a man on a cross, and the writer Juvenal was so repulsed, he said he hoped the actor would end up on a real cross. The cross was just absolutely appalling. To, to most people in the first century Roman Empire. And in this passage here, and in the next couple of passages, Luke tells us about the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, Luke doesn't give us all of the details concerning the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke is pretty selective in what he tells us. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning, Luke seems to have selected certain details that would teach us about one primary thing. I think Luke was trying to teach us here about forgiveness. There are two main parts of this passage, and the first thing we see here, Jesus prays for forgiveness. In the, in the passage right before this, Jesus, on the morning of what we now call Good Friday, Jesus started out on a long walk through the streets of Jerusalem, heading to his execution. Surrounded by Roman soldiers, followed by a large crowd of people, Jewish religious leaders, many other people, and many other people also probably lined the streets and the alleys as, as Jesus passed by, an incredibly agony organizing walk for Jesus. People today call his walk the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows or the way of suffering. He, he probably hadn't slept in 24 hours. He'd been beaten, spit upon, mocked, even scourged. The leather strands of a Roman whip, which were tipped with jagged pieces of, of bone and metal and rock, just ripping into and, and tearing the flesh off of his back and his front, and Jesus, as he then stumbled toward his execution site, weak from pain, exhaustion, blood loss, he could not carry his own cross beam, the horizontal beam for his cross, so the soldiers ordered Simon of Cyrene to carry it. And we now learn there in verse 32 that, that Jesus is not the only one who will be executed here today. Luke says that Jesus was led away here with two criminals. 
Matthew 27 calls them robbers or, or thieves. And here in this passage, this massive procession of people now finally arrives at this place called the Skull. It was also called back then Golgotha. Probably just a, a hill outside of Jerusalem somewhere that possibly resembled a skull. The Latin word for skull uh, is Calvaria. And that's why many people today call this place Calvary. And, and you know, in one sense, it, it hasn't taken long at all for Jesus to get to Golgotha. It's really just taken 24 hours now for Jesus to be arrested and beaten and tried. And, and here he is now at Golgotha. A very brief trip for Jesus. But in another sense, it's taken an incredibly long time for Jesus to get to Golgotha. Because Jesus has really been heading toward this place, Golgotha, from all eternity. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, long before He was ever born. He was heading toward this place right here called Golgotha. On a rescue mission to save our fallen world. And for 23 chapters now, here in the book of Luke. 23 long chapters of life. And, and of miracles, and of all kinds of teachings, Jesus has continued to move toward this place right here. His face constantly set towards Golgotha. The events that will happen here at this place called the Skull, this is why Jesus came to earth. Jesus was born in a little town called Bethlehem in order that He might one day climb up a little hill called Golgotha. Jesus was born for this right here. Jesus was born to die for sinners like you and me. And this long trip to Golgotha here, which started for Jesus long before He was ever born, it is finally come to an end. He's here. He's here. You can just picture him. A badly, badly, badly bruised and bloody Jesus finally stumbling up this hill called Golgotha. Falling at times, most likely. Probably whipped on occasion to keep him moving. And here he is, cresting the hill of Golgotha, a hill he had in his sights from all eternity. And man, Luke here now, in an almost shockingly brief fashion, he tells us what happens next. Just three words, verse 33, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified. And Jesus the eternal Son of God, God in human flesh, is now hanging on a Roman cross. Crucifixion, a crucifixion was by far the most violent and degrading form of Roman executions. 
Cicero, the Roman historian, he called it a cruel and disgusting penalty. So violent and degrading that crucifixion by law, just like with a scourging, could not be inflicted on Roman citizens, but only on slaves and non-citizens like Jesus. It was reserved only for the worst of crimes, and all Roman crucifixions were essentially carried out in the same manner. Jesus arrived here with his own cross beam, which was customary. And when Jesus crested the top of this hill here, he probably saw in front of him the vertical beam of his cross called the crux simplex already fixed in the ground. Typically a very rough beam some 10 feet or more long. Simon of Cyrene dropped Jesus' cross beam on the ground and the Roman soldiers then laid Jesus on it. The Roman soldiers would then usually either tie a man to his crossbeam with rope or less frequently nail him to it with spikes seven to nine inches long. John 20, 25 says Jesus was nailed to his crossbeam. The spikes driven probably not into his palms like a lot of pictures depict. The palms were too weak to support a body. Hanging on the cross, the spikes would simply tear through the fingers. So the Romans had perfected another procedure. And here with Jesus, the Romans probably drove the spikes between the two main bones of Jesus' forearm, close to his wrist, which could hold a body hanging from spikes. After driving the spikes in both of his wrists, They then probably used two long forked poles. They put the crossbeam on the poles and they then lifted Jesus up high into the air. Jesus now dangling from his crossbeam, suspended on the spikes through his wrists. And the Roman soldiers then either would would typically put the crossbeam up near the top of that vertical pole, or they would just drop it into a slot on top of the pole. And the Romans would then either just leave the person dangling there, or they would maybe attach a small platform to the vertical beam so the crucified person could kind of stand on that platform or they would just nail the person's feet to the beam with another spike. Many passages in the Word indicate that they nailed Jesus' feet to the beam. When they did it, they probably turned His feet outward, one heel in front of the other, And they hammered another, just one long, single spike just inside the Achilles tendons of both of his legs. The knees flexed just a bit so that Jesus could then push and pull himself up on the three spikes in order to breathe. And death on a Roman cross was usually caused by loss of blood and suffocation person too exhausted to lift himself up anymore to breathe and finally just suffocating. Sometimes taking several days. So the Romans would often break the person's legs just below the knees, 
causing massive shock and ensuring that the person could no longer raise himself up to breathe. John 19 says that these soldiers here, they later broke the legs of the two criminals beside Jesus, but when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. So you just picture it now. Jesus Jesus has now been nailed to a Roman cross. Mark 15 says that Jesus will now hang there for three hours alive. And man, I tell you, we've all probably thought of it before. Think of it again. Tough to imagine just how incredibly painful that crucifixion process would have been for Jesus. And you just think about the spikes slowly hammered between the bones on his wrists. Think of the pain as he's lifted in there hanging from those spikes. Think of the pain when the, when the, when the, the soldiers probably very abruptly drop the crossbeam into place while he's hanging from those spikes. Think of the pain while they're driving a spike through the flesh in his legs. Screams of agony, most likely, from Jesus. You know, we have a word that has actually come from that crucifixion process. It's the word excruciating. It comes from the word crucis, or cross. This right here, for Jesus Christ, was literally excruciating. Unimaginable pain. For Jesus. And Jesus is now pulling and pushing himself up and down on three spikes in order to breathe. And a couple of Old Testament prophecies have now been fulfilled. Psalm 22, David prophesied that the future Messiah would one day be pierced in his hands and his feet. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 that he would be numbered with the transgressors, and there he is. Jesus the the Messiah, now pierced in his hands and feet, now numbered with the transgressors, numbered between two criminals, counted now as a criminal. Counted now as a sinner. In order that sinners like you and me might one day be counted as righteous, in order that we one day might be counted by God as innocent through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And Jesus, now pinned to this cross here, laboring to breathe, he speaks. Look at verse 34 again. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, the Bible tells us of seven, seven different statements that Jesus made from the cross. Luke only gives us a couple of them. A.W. Pink wrote just an amazing book called The Seven Sayings of the Savior on the Cross. And that right there is the very first statement, a very simple prayer from Jesus. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. (laughs) 
crazy when you think about it. J.C. Ryle said, as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. And Jesus And the one and only great high priest has now begun to offer up to God the one and only perfect sacrifice, his own sinless life. And on the basis of this one perfect sacrifice, he now begins to pray for others. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's mind-blowing. It really is mind-blowing when you think about that. The initial state from Jesus there. What would you have said? Just put on the cross. If you were innocent. Listen. Man, if I'd have been scourged like Jesus just, just recently, my arms and my feet now nailed to a cross, the, the, every part of my body just screaming in pain, and standing here, this ridiculous crowd in front of me, hollering for my crucifixion, I would have hoped, I would hope that, that I would say, Father, forgive them. But listen, I'd be seriously tempted to say, Father, condemn them. Destroy them. Wipe them out. The whole miserable lot. Wipe them out. Oh, man. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And I think Jesus was probably praying directly there for these Roman soldiers and the Jewish religious leaders who just put him on the cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus says, for they know not what they do. You know, in one sense, these men here in front of Jesus, they did know what they had just done. Most of them probably knew deep inside they had just put an innocent man on the cross. Many of them may have even known deep inside their hearts that this man now on the cross was more than just a man. That he was somehow connected to God. They knew to some degree what they were doing and they were without excuse this horrendous sin against the Son of God. But man, in another sense, they, they didn't know fully what they were doing. These men are still unbelievers. Their minds are still blinded by the God of this age, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. The Holy Spirit has not yet illumined their minds. He's not yet turned the light bulb on for them. The Holy Spirit has not yet revealed to them that this truly is Jesus the Messiah, God in human flesh. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about a wisdom of God that must be imparted to someone by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 7, none of the rulers of this age understood this hidden wisdom. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Holy Spirit had not yet imparted to these men. This hidden wisdom of God. They're blind. And in Acts 3, Peter will later say to the Jewish people, you killed the author of life. But I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. And these men here, they knew to some degree what they were doing, but they didn't know fully. And Jesus prays for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.
And Jesus, listen, he was not wiping away their sin there. He was not cleansing them of all of their guilt. Jesus doesn't wipe away sin and cleanse the guilt of unrepentant unbelievers like these men here. He was not doing that. I think Jesus was simply asking his father here not to ultimately hold this sin against them. So that in the future, when the Holy Spirit would then illumine some of their hearts... And show them what they had truly done here. And lead them to repentance and faith in Jesus. I think Jesus prays for their forgiveness here. So that in the future, when the Holy Spirit would do that for some of these men here, the Father then would actually forgive them. And not hold this horrific sin against them forever. Damning them for it. Which would would have been the just punishment for these men and man you you think about what's going on here you just picture that in your mind jesus he is demonstrating here some incredible love for his enemies i mean jesus told us back in luke 6 that we should love our enemies we should pray for those who abuse us and jesus is now demonstrating it for us earlier in this chapter his enemies yelled crucify And Jesus now prays, forgive. Forgive. And you know, even though Jesus was probably praying directly there for these men who just did this thing to him, there is a sense, I think, in which Jesus was also probably praying indirectly there for every sinner who would one day come to him in repentance and faith. Man, that prayer right there, that gives us a ton of hope. Because Romans, Romans 5 says that because of our sin, we are also enemies of God. We are by nature enemies of Jesus Christ. Christ, wicked sinners like these men here. And we also really nailed Jesus to the cross. Who killed Jesus? Well, these men did directly, but it was ultimately our sin that did it. It was our sin that ultimately sent Jesus to this cross on Golgotha. A song, a song we sing often. I think we'll sing it here in a few minutes. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And it was our sin that ultimately did it. And that prayer right there, Father, forgive them, that gives us so much hope. Because listen, If Jesus could pray that directly for these wicked sinners in front of him on this occasion, these enemies here who just directly nailed him to the cross, committing one of the worst sins in human history, if Jesus could pray for their forgiveness, pray that the Father would not ultimately hold this horrific sin against them, then surely Jesus would forgive us if we would turn to him in repentance and faith. Charles Spurgeon, he once said, 
He once said that he loved the prayer that Jesus prayed here because of its indistinctness. Spurgeon said that he loved that Jesus asked the Father to forgive them without ever exactly saying who the them was. Because Spurgeon said that he felt then that the prayer could be applied to him. And he invited other people to enter into the prayer too. Spurgeon said this, he said, Now into that little pronoun them, I feel that I can crawl. Can you, get the, can you get in there, Spurgeon said? Oh, by a humble faith, take hold of the cross of Christ by trusting in it and get into that big little word, them. Trust in Christ and hear Jesus say of you, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the first thing in this passage. Jesus, on this cross, prays for forgiveness. And the second thing here, Jesus pays for forgiveness. You you think about it here. If if all Jesus did here was pray for forgiveness, and and that's it, just, just pray that the Father would forgive sinners, the Father would forgive no one. It would be impossible for you to be forgiven. But man, the good news here is that Jesus doesn't just pray for forgiveness on the cross. No, Jesus also pays for forgiveness by remaining on the cross and dying. In, in, order, in order for us to be forgiven, it wasn't enough for Jesus just to get on the cross. Jesus had to stay on the cross. And man, thankfully, he does. In spite of many temptations here to the contrary. Luke tells us at the end of verse 34 that the soldiers now began to cast lots for his clothing. In Roman crucifixions, it was, it was customary for the executioners to get the clothing of the crucified person, kind of a payment for job well done. So these Roman soldiers now with Jesus on the cross begin to cast lots for his clothing, basically throwing dice, winner take all. Also a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. David prophesying about the future Messiah back in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, said, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. You know, most, uh, most pictures or portraits that you now see with Jesus on the cross, Jesus has a loincloth. And that's possible. But it is much more likely that Jesus had nothing. The Romans wanted to crucify people in complete and utter shame. So they typically crucify them with nothing on. Which is most likely the way Jesus Christ died. Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom suffered tremendously in a 
Nazi concentration camp in Germany beside her sister Betsy. And when Corrie Ten Boom was finally released from the concentration camp, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. And Corrie talked in her book about a particular experience she and Betsy had in that concentration camp on a certain day. Corrie said this, quote, Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. We had to maintain our erect, hands-at-side position as we filed slowly past a battalion of grinning guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs, I could not imagine. Nor could I see the necessity for the complete undressing. But it was one of these mornings... While we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt to life for me. He hung naked on a cross. He hung naked on a cross. Corey said, I had not known, I had not thought that the the paintings, the carved crucifixes. They they showed at least a scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, long ago, there had been no reverence. No more reverence than I saw in the faces around us now. And I leaned toward Betsy, ahead of me in line, Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue, mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. And ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey. And I never thanked him. End quote. Jesus Christ, eternal Son of God, perfectly holy, perfectly innocent, perfectly loving, most likely endured a shameful, public, naked crucifixion on a brutal Roman cross for sinners like you and me. Have you ever thanked Him? Have you? Have you lived a life of gratitude for what He did for you? Have you ever thanked Him? And Jesus is now He's now pinned to this cross, suspended above ground, blood everywhere, probably naked in front of all of these people, struggling to breathe. And Luke now tells us of the reactions of the various groups of bystanders. Luke says first in verse 35 that the people stood by watching. 
most likely referring to just the crowd of common Jews that were there, just, just standing there watching. Just watching this public spectacle of absolute shame and suffering. Just watch it. Some of them, some of them may be sympathetic to Jesus, mourning in some way, weeping possibly, maybe, maybe covering their eyes at his shame. Others probably just curious. Just captivated, just, just riveted to this, this human blood and gore. Like people on a highway slowing down and just gawking at this massive, deadly car wreck. Crowd here just staring at Jesus. But Luke tells us here that the other two groups of people were verbally abusing Jesus. Look at verse 35. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him. Saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Man. Jesus in complete agony here. And I mean, the, 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 the utter hardness of the human heart. It's amazing to think that, that there would be human beings mocking him here. Utter hardness of sinful human beings. They're now actually laughing at him, verbally ta- tormenting him, taunting him. Right after Jesus prayed that the Father would forgive them. And Luke says the rulers, the Jewish religious leaders, they scoffed at Jesus. The Greek word literally means they turned up their noses at Jesus. It's the very picture of self-righteousness. You look down your nose at other human beings. And in this case, looking down their noses at God in human flesh. Scoffing. And, and talking loudly to each other. He saved others. If he's the Christ of God, the chosen one of Messiah, let, let him save himself. Jesus told the religious leaders back in Luke 4 that they would one day say to him, Physician, heal yourself. And there it is. Save yourself. If you're the Messiah. Man, what they're saying there is crazy. Because they they freely acknowledge there that Jesus saved others. Meaning most likely that he had healed others. They, they, They freely acknowledge his healings there. You healed other people, Jesus. But all those healings that they acknowledge here are still not enough for them to believe. And all through the book of Luke, these men have been demanding from Jesus more and more signs. Let's see, let us see more signs, Jesus. More signs, Jesus. Then we'll believe, and they're still doing it. Right there. If you're really the Messiah, Jesus, get off the cross, man. Save yourself. Show us, and then we will believe you. And the soldiers here, they say the same type of thing. Luke says they also mocked Jesus made fun of him, ridiculed him, offering him sour wine, Luke says. 
John 19 says they put a sponge full of sour wine on the end of a hyssop branch and they held it up to his parched lips. Most likely not a gesture of kindness. Sour wine was very cheap wine. It was the wine of soldiers and of slaves. It quenched a person's thirst much better than water. And it is possible that this was an act of kindness. These soldiers who just crucified him are now for some reason mercifully giving a dying man a sort of painkiller or something to quench his thirst. But Luke says there they were mocking Jesus. So this was probably not kindness. It was probably just an effort to give Jesus some strength in order to prolong his agony on the cross. And man, another Old Testament prophecy is now fulfilled. Psalm 69 said about the future Messiah, I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And the soldiers then say the exact same type of thing that the religious leaders just said. If you are the king of the Jews, Jesus, then save yourself, man. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus told Pilate that he was the king of the Jews. He was the long-awaited Messiah from the line of David. And Pilate's soldiers now taunt him for it. You're the king of the Jews, you bloody naked man. Show us your power, king. You fraud. Get off the cross. And yet, right there, these religious leaders and soldiers, with their mocking, have fulfilled another Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. Psalm 22. All who see me, mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him. For the Lord delights in him, right? Psalm 22. And man, Luke Luke has given us so many details here in this little passage that were clearly prophesied back in the Old Testament. It's like Luke is just shouting at us over and over again, Jesus is the Messiah. And his death here was not just a random tragedy. No, it was carefully planned beforehand by God and carefully foretold in detail by the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is the Messiah who was born to die. And Luke says in verse 38 that the soldiers then put an inscription over the head of Jesus on the cross. The Romans, when they crucified someone, they would typically put a placard of sorts called a titulus either around the person's neck on the cross or on the cross above the person's head. And it contained a written public declaration of the person's crimes. And they now put one over the head of Jesus. 
Hester Prynne, in the novel The Scarlet Letter, had to wear her crimes on her chest, a scarlet letter A, publicly declaring her adultery. And Jesus now has to wear his crimes on his cross, over his head. The problem, however, is that Jesus had no crimes. The Bible said he was sinless, and Pilate has said multiple times in this chapter that Jesus was innocent. So verse 38 says that the inscription that Pilate eventually put over Jesus simply said, this is the king of the Jews. And John 19 says that the religious leaders then protested to Pilate, and they said, don't write this is the king of the Jews, but rather write this man said I'm the king of the Jews, and Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. And he left it. And I think it was probably just one final jab from Pilate, aimed at these religious leaders here, Pilate knows that that title over Jesus' head is going to tick them off, drive them crazy, so he leaves it there. But listen, you know who ultimately put that particular inscription over the head of Jesus? God did. God sovereignly governing over the sins of human beings. God sovereignly moving parts here and orchestrating pieces here. God writes a placard and puts it over the head of His Son and now publicly declares to every bystander and to every person passing by, Jesus is the King of the Jews. The Messiah. The Savior. Born. To die. Man, you step back and you look at the second part of that passage, what Jesus has just shown us there. These specific details there that Luke selectively chose to to show us. Luke giving us two groups of people there showing us that, that they're shouting the exact same thing at Jesus. And listen, Luke will give us one more group in the very next passage. One of the criminals beside Jesus will say the exact same thing to Jesus. Three groups of people here that Luke is is giving us. All three of them saying the exact same thing here in this passage. Jesus, save yourself. Save yourself. Save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. If you are someone, Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, the Christ of God, the chosen one, then get off of that cross. And listen, Jesus could have done it in a heartbeat. Man, Jesus, he has performed so many miracles in the book of Luke. (laughs) Healing, paralytics, Silencing hurricanes, raising the dead, it would have been nothing for Jesus to come down off the cross and save himself. And listen, I think Jesus was probably seriously tempted to do it. Jesus is a God man. He wouldn't have done it, but he faced temptation in this life. You don't think that was a temptation for Jesus? In total agony, 
on the cross, every part of him throbbing with pain, a ridiculous crowd taunting and mocking him. Don't think he was tempted just a little bit to save himself. Amen. Could have done it. He knows he has the power to save himself. He says in Matthew 26, I could call out to my father right now and he would at once send more than 12 legions of angels to help me. He knows he can do it. But here's the thing. If Jesus saves himself, he can't save you. He can't save you. He, he can't forgive you of your sin. In order for you to be forgiven, it wasn't enough for Jesus just to get on the cross. No, Jesus had to stay on the cross. He had, to, he had to die. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to pray for forgiveness. He had to pay for forgiveness. And the only way Jesus could pay the full price for the forgiveness of sinners was to stay on the cross and die which was the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. Only way we could be forgiven was for him to die and take that punishment as his own. Jesus has a choice here. He saves himself. We save sinners. Man, Jesus very mercifully chose here to save sinners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he stayed on the cross and died. And the forgiveness that Jesus purchased here in his death, it is yours through repentance and faith. If you are in Christ Jesus by faith today, if you have genuinely repented, you've turned away from your sins, the sins you followed in your previous life, and you are now clinging to Jesus Christ with a simple childlike faith. If you are now following in faith, you're seeking to obey him in faith, you're worshiping him in faith, you love him in faith, if that is you, please listen to me. You are forgiven of all of your sin, past, present, and future, washed in the blood of Jesus. And listen, the forgiveness that you receive from Jesus when you are His enemy, His forgiveness for you, His enemy, that is the very thing that empowers you to forgive your enemies. Jesus, He forgives you of the trillion dollars, the trillion dollar crimes that you've committed against him, and that then empowers you to forgive the ten dollar crimes that they've, your enemies have committed against you. Forgiveness in equals forgiveness out. Stephen, in the book of Acts, had received, he had received this massive forgiveness from Jesus and when Stephen was later stoned to death in Acts 7, Stephen prayed for his enemies with almost the exact same words that Jesus prayed on the cross here. Acts 7.60, Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
and he died. Receiving forgiveness empowers you to give forgiveness. And please listen to me. If you cannot give forgiveness to others in your life, that is a sign that you have maybe never received forgiveness. Forgiveness in will equal forgiveness out. When we were on our family vacation in Cape Cod two summers ago, we were all out in the backyard of our family cottage there, just a small place owned by my dad, his brother, and sister. We're in the backyard eating around the picnic table, and a woman walked by, and one of my children, who will remain unnamed, a little uh, boy of mine who is very prone to engage anyone and everyone in conversation, (laughs) he just happened to look up and see her walking by, and he said very loudly, you are so... And we all cringed. Oh, no. And he said, beautiful. And we all went, oh, yes, that's so good. And the woman stopped, and she looked over, and she said, wow, thank you. I needed that so much today. And then she came over and sat down at the table, and in about 10 minutes, she blurted out, How do you forgive someone? As I was driving onto the Cape this morning, I was thinking of this bitterness I have toward my deceased grandfather who used to live on the Cape. I just cannot forgive him. How do you forgive someone? And she sat and talked a little bit more about her situation and left. And the next morning, I was out back reading my Bible and my dear wife walked out of the house with her Bible under her arm. And she said... She's on the beach, and I'm going to talk to her. And Molly only shared one Bible verse with her that morning. Ephesians 4.32. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. And that woman on the beach received the forgiveness of Christ that morning. And she forgave her grandfather. She's now a really good friend of ours. We talk to her all the time. She is now following Christ hard in her life in a church up there in New England, reading her Bible all the time. And she says regularly, I have no more bitterness toward my grandfather. It's gone. Forgiveness in equals forgiveness out. Jesus prayed and he paid for forgiveness. I'd encourage you to receive it today by faith and then go and forgive others as God in Christ forgave you. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the cross. Just thank you, Father, for the beauties of the cross. Everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross. We thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for your love which is demonstrated at the cross. Lord, we can get into all kinds of different crazy sentimental thoughts when it comes to your love. Your word says God demonstrated his love for us right there on the cross 
while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Father, I pray you'd help us this morning to receive forgiveness and run after this Christ who died that we might have forgiveness. And Father, you would help us to go out boldly and proclaim the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus. In his name, amen.